Welcome to episode 39 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics and making. And this is the last podcast episode of 2019. So, Eddie, Chris, how are you all doing at the cusp of the new decade? Happy holiday. I'm uh, just now getting back into the shop after taking off a few days, spending with family, and eating, and, and basically working off all the food I ate. But uh, yeah, it's been a good year. How about you, Chris? Uh, it's been pretty good. I mean, a lot of crazy things happened this year, and just thinking about the future, like it's going to be even crazier. So super excited to talk about that. And you, Winston? Uh, well, I ate more than I should have, and uh, while I am in New Jersey visiting friends and family, I'm sort of uh, away from my gym, away from my usual running routes, so I've been feeling pretty uh, pretty sedentary, so I've just been uh, working away my sorrows in Fusion 360. Well, I should say Fusion 360 on a good day, um, but since uh, Carbide 3D started uh, uh, bundling a complimentary copy of a Libre Atom 3D, um, starting from like the Black Friday sale till the end of the year, I, I'm sort of obligated to make a little content on that front. And uh, learning a new CAD program has um, it's it's interesting, shall we say? Is the Libre the is that what Stefan's using? I'm not sure, but I knew it's it's a standalone um, software, so it's like perpetually licensed. It's not like a subscription based thing. Um, it, it seems competent. It's got all the, the major features like you would want in a parametric program, like lofts and sweeps and extrudes, and, um, it, it's fully parametric. So it, it takes all the right checkboxes. It's just that using it and having like your, your, your workflow and your brain like tuned into one way of, of like using a program, it's kind of jarring for me. Um, like a lot of little things, like when you're selecting edges to uh, fill it or something, the UI is different. Um, this thing, like Atom 3D, looks like they stole Office 2007's like uh, ribbon scheme and oh, UI. Um, and the way they highlight the lines, um, the visibility is a little poorer. So it's like you got to hover, make sure you're like just on the right pixel, look a little close, make sure the line change colors before you click on it. Otherwise, you like select a face or something. Um, so it's just like my brain, like, and my eyes are like attuned to like fusions like ui so like i can when i'm trying to like snap a sketch onto a, a vertex or something like i can just hover my mouse get it in the right neighborhood i know how many pixels i need to be within for it to snap and just click and it's good and here trying to like draw sketches make sure the constraints are right it's just it, it feels like i'm i'm using the mouse with my left hand or something it's just something's a little off and it's just really like uncomfortable for me does that product have cam support too it does not. Um, there are some APIs so that you could potentially um, provide CAM support through it. I, I, I think someone might have done it before, but um, out of the box, it does not. Just out of curiosity, what's uh, Carbide's tool chain for using that and then cutting with, a, say, a Nomad? Uh, right now, you've got two ways to get uh, data out of it. You can export as a DXF, so you could bring that into... Um, Carbide Create or whatever you would use for uh, 2D stuff or like Vectric VCarve. 
Spire, whatever. Heck, you could even bring it into Fusion. Um, or you can export an STL and bring that through some sort of third, uh, third-party 3D cam, like Fusion or MeshCam. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's a modeling tool, basically. Yeah, it's like SketchUp, but a, like parametric and a little better in some places and uh, could use a little more polish in others, I think. Do you find the most frustrating thing about a new CAD program is that you already know how to do everything. You just have to try to figure out where it is in this program, like the hotkeys, the buttons, and like how everything is laid out. I think I find it more frustrating because I know how to do something. I just don't know how to do it in this software. There are some parts of the experience that I actually find myself liking more than Fusion. And basic UI interaction stuff isn't actually one of my gripes. Um, I specifically tried to go into this um, without doing any tutorials and just like like clicking my way through and just trying to like brute force uh, an understanding of this program. And there were some things that were kind of unintuitive and um, some things that I, I got okay. One of the, the things I thought I would hate was um, just the basic UI interactions, like how do you pan, rotate, is it middle mouse button, whatever. Um, Alibre did this thing where by default it's like hold, I think, left and right mouse or something, and it it just seemed weird to do that for rotation. Um, but you can set that for um, uh, dragging or panning, and I actually, uh, like the translation moves, and I actually found myself quite liking that setup. Um, so. There, there's some basic UI things that they did really well. Um, what the the part that gets me the most, like the most frustrating part for me, is when I do something and I know it could be done better. So one of the the, the most common features that you would use in a modeling program is the extrude function or an extruded cut. And the way um, Atom 3D previews these operations is that it creates a wireframe of the volume that's being cut out. Whereas in Fusion and basically any other CAD program I've used, you actually see that volume removed from the object. So you can actually rotate around and preview what that cut's going to look like. Having a wireframe of that cut, it really doesn't help you. It doesn't give you a good idea of what that extruded cut is going to look like. So I kind of wish, like, yes, you can see where that cut's going to be, but you don't get a good idea and you can't like rotate the part and, and see like what your clearances are um, because the representation is so limited. Um, so that's that's what gets me the most. It, it's a weird gripe, I guess, but um, yeah, that it, it just it bothers me knowing that there's a better way. Uh, and there's there's lots of little other things to uh, too, but I don't want to rant on that. Um, Eddie, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to ask Chris how he's doing on his uh, Johnny Five part. Oh, uh, yeah. Everything is done. Um, I didn't, the bridge boards were all busy the whole week. So um, it's already off my machine. It's at my office desk right now. I, I, as soon as they freeze up, I'll be able to use it to drill a hole and then I'm ship it off. So I'm pretty much done. 90% done. Yeah, I just, I finished mine today, finally. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with how it came out. I posted a few shots of it uh, in progress on Instagram. My, I can't remember, was yours aluminum or Delrin? Mine was aluminum. Okay, yeah, mine was Delrin, so it wasn't, wasn't that tough. But uh, I had, yeah, I had some problems with the first, like I ended up having to make it, 
Well, really twice. The first one was, I did like kind of a test piece just to work on the finishes and stuff. And then uh, like the first one I did for real, I think I mentioned on the last podcast, right before I went to Ohio, I had some gouging issues. And then uh, this one came out, pretty, the final one came out pretty good. I'm actually shipping it out tomorrow. So uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to get it done and shipped out tomorrow as well. Um, just need a machine to do that last part, but yeah, I mean, every project has been fun in some sort of way. There's always some kind of learning and stuff. So uh, it's been it's been pretty cool to work on this as well, knowing it's it's a part of a bigger assembly. Yeah, I um so on the first like my when I was just kind of experimenting with the finishing on the Delrin um, on the like the scrap part, I was testing out uh, like alternatives. Like usually I use morph spiral to finish contoured parts. Um, and parallel, like starting to use parallel more, but I wanted to kind of experiment with um, flow, like using it uh, even like three axis flow. But uh, and actually, I'm pretty happy with the toolpath or the surface finish I get with that. Only, only issue I've run into, like why I couldn't use it on this part, is I don't know if you saw my Instagram, but I put my logo on on the four side faces, like a small pocket, right? So I had to patch those when I was doing finishing, so the finishing toolpath wouldn't see it. And um, the logo pocket, you know, I didn't want it, the tool dipping down in there. Yeah, and which works fine, like with parallel and most of the three axis or 3D toolpaths, that's fine. But I forgot, like flows driven by the ISO surface. So it sees the patch as a separate surface from the the rest of the face, basically. And then it, it kind of affects the toolpath. It uh, breaks at the yeah. So you have to make a whole patch of the whole face, like that square. You can't just patch it in the middle. You have to make one surface, right? Like it's, instead of trying to patch the your logo, you just create a a whole new. So you could sweep a surface from one side to the other side, so it's one, and then you can flow off of that. Yeah, actually, that would have worked. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I was actually um, that's better than what I was thinking of. Because the other thing I could have done just is done is gone back into the going back a little bit in the timeline before I did the extrude and just like use it oh, earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, that, I hate doing that. Cause that can really mess you up. Right. If you forget to go jump your timeline back forward, but, uh, okay. Yeah. Actually, I didn't think about that. Just put the patch in the wrong place that, you know, basically a lesson learned about the, the, the newer tool paths, like kind of what they, what they drive off of. Um, so yeah, it's not like something, the STL, I guess it's the surface. So, which is actually, that's the benefit, right, with flow. But in my case, it was kind of messing me up. Did you run into uh, any problems with yours? I think you just, you probably had the same one, I, same problem I had, right, which was the tool. Like some of the holes were longer than your longest tool set for the, on the V250. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's just too long. Yeah. So I ended up having, to, I did two setups, like everything in one. And then I did the bottom face, like in a second setup using the, the four jaw to hold it like ID clamping and uh, actually pretty happy with how the, you know, so I had to basically bore halfway down. Like I had a tool just long enough to go a little bit more than halfway down. And then I flipped it over on the center board and used the same tool to finish it from the other side. And I was worried about, you know, alignment. There was a little bit of a seam. I could feel it like where the, where the two boards intersected each other, but uh, it was more than acceptable. So got lucky. <laughs> That's cool. I'm glad that worked out. 
yeah, I guess we're at the end of the year, like Winston said, you made most of your big changes in 2018, right? That's when you kind of left New Jersey and came out to Carbide. Um, yeah, I mean, 2019 was still a bit of a transition year because I'm just like figuring out how to how to live like a Californian, how to get my weekly dose of avocado and all those other things and sunshine and temperate weather. Um, but 2018 was like the big life change and 2019 was just about settling into uh, that new lifestyle and uh, becoming a full-time content creator. Yeah, that's right. And Chris, when did, when did you take the job at uh, MR Molds? That was... Uh, February of 2019. Yeah, yeah. So we all kind of had big changes. I retired and went to Germany and <laughs> bought a new machine. So um, yeah, that's been a big, been a good year, I think, for all of us. Eddie, out of curiosity, when did you first start your CNC journey? Uh, depends on where you, what you count. Like even just like three D printing stuff. Yeah, so three D printer was I want to say twenty fourteen. I got the printer bot like I think on my birthday in twenty fourteen, and then uh, twenty fifteen. Pretty sure it was twenty fifteen. I got the other mill and the Nomad a little bit later that year. So really. CNC machining was 2015 and I would say I wasn't really doing anything useful until probably January of 2016. So I spent like a few months just kind of doing the can tutorials and really just kind of getting better with fusion during that time. And then by 2016, I felt like I could make anything I wanted to on those machines, like within the limits of the machines. Yeah, that's crazy. And Chris, what about you? Like when did you guys first, dip your toes into the digital fab world? Uh, I got the Nomad on March of 2018. That's when I started learning CAD and stuff. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I think, I think I messaged. The you got, yeah, the day it got there. Yeah, yeah. I talked to Eddie because I was I was stuck on the... I mean, I was basically asking him. He, he, he showed me how to do the adaptive chain uh, trick where you do like an offset on the outside curve and then you have it go on the inside. Like that's how new I was in March of 2018. And uh, yeah, that's kind of when it really started. I, I had the Shapeoko, I think a month or two before, but I didn't really get anything productive done on that. It was more uh, struggling just to, it's hard enough to like need to learn CAD and CAM. It's even harder when you have no experience and then try to put the Shapeoko together with no background and that kind of stuff. So it was more of learning about that. And then when I got the Nomad is when I actually got to uh, sit down and just try stuff, break things, um, you know, really figure out tool paths and stuff like that. So yeah, March of, so it's almost been two years. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, we're about to turn over to a new decade and in well under a decade, like we've all come a ridiculous distance in like our learning and like i mean i started in like i think it was january of 2014 so just in a matter of years like our own knowledge has grown tremendously our comfort with machines um our comfort with software fusion fusion itself has come a long ways in this decade and it's it's kind of crazy to think of where we might go in uh, 2020 yeah did you think like in 2015 or 2016 that you'd be running five axis machine jobs <laughs> no i thought nope. i'd be like going the route of just like making dumb things that you can find on etsy for like the rest of my cnc career like i didn't know enough 
to be able to to scale my ambitions to the kinds of things that I could make now. Yeah, there, there's, and none of that would have happened either if Winston didn't let me borrow his pocket and see. Because it was because he let me borrow that pocket and see, and I made those Game of Thrones chess pieces or whatever. That's how I got the attention of pocket and see, and they ended up sending the machine to me. So, uh, super thankful for that, Winston. I always remind you <laughs> when I get a chance that I super appreciate it. That probably worked out pretty well because I'm pretty sure you were hooked after you borrowed that machine, right? Absolutely, man. I mean, it's five axes. Like, it's any anything more than three axes is obviously going to be fun. I mean, it kind of fits with my MO, though. Like, I always see myself as like a CNC drug dealer and I try and get people hooked. <laughs> yeah, you got me. You got me hooked pretty good. I mean, like, in two years, I went from being a nurse to mold designer and now I'm. Uh, electro designer and programmer you know for a micron and rotors and stuff so it's been an intense journey and looking forward to what comes next so what is next for you nick uh next year you got any big plans for 2020 since i've kind of got my foot into the door at this company now and i'm doing stuff that i like um i start my master cam training actually in january even though i've been programming for over a month just to get some official training under my belt that's going to be for five weeks, uh, like once a, once one day a week for five weeks. And then we're going to move to a new building. And then I'm going to should be starting hypermill training in the next month or so as well. Uh, so that's what's going to happen at work. And then as far as my personal stuff, I think my ambition is still a lot higher. Like I'm looking forward to the next, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years, what I want to do, where I see myself. Uh, what kind of projects I want to take on as far as career-wise, and then a lot of personal stuff that I'm hoping to to get more, uh, kind of attack more. Um, I, I got a, a house that I'm going to be moving into, so I'll have a space now, uh, like a garage and an extra bedroom for the studio. So I'm hoping with all this new space, I can develop a better workflow area for myself. And plus, I won't have to worry about making noise, you know, CNC machining in the living room because my lovely fiance has let me do that for the last like two and a half years. But can you imagine trying to eat dinner and watch TV while I'm sitting there milling aluminum? Like it's it can get old pretty fast. And even though they don't complain, like I just feel terrible. You know, like I'm ruining, I'm noise polluting so hard just trying to get this project done while everyone's trying to like hang out and stuff. So now that I have my own space, I don't have any worry of that. I'm not bothering anybody and I can run that thing all night. Like it's going to be, I can be more productive now and not have to worry about that kind of stuff. So for me, that's the big thing uh, is being able to start setting up a real work studio for not only for YouTube, but just, you know, uh, business and stuff. And then a space to call my own, you know, and, and start doing uh, wood stuff as well. And, and everything that I've always dreamed of doing, I now have the place to do it in. So for me, that's my focus. And then the career thing is just kind of planning, like, what's the next thing? You know, once I do hypermill training, what am I going to push for after that? Is it multi-axis? Is it mill turn? You know, there's a, there's still a lot more beyond five axis in machining. So I want to learn a lot of different softwares and a lot of different types of machines. And um, the, the big goal on the top of the list is going to be what machine am I going to buy next? Because I'm ready to, uh, you know, shed my small boy pants and put on the big boy pants and I'm looking for a bigger machine, uh, whatever I can fit in the garage and power, uh, to start making some chips off of. So I've been shopping around for some midsize, you know, uh, machines, either twenty, thirty thousand dollars range up until like the 70, 90s, kind of like where I can f stand to fit 
I think, inside the garage. So that's kind of, those are all the things that I'm looking at, you know, for the next year. And hopefully by the end of next year, I've accomplished at least one of those three. I'd be pretty happy. Chris, you, you can't go about doing that. You're going to make me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you you live like 20 minutes away. You can come over anytime. And that's 20 minutes without traffic. Let's be real here. If at least both of you guys, you know, you drive to work uh, to a place that's full of CNC, big CNC machines. So <laughs> that's like one experience I don't have here. So uh, There's nothing better than having the CNC in your own garage. So you're going to be just fine. Yeah right now it's just thinking about what i'm missing out on um really i'm just most excited that um i get to do more of this stuff um i've I've sort of gotten into a little rhythm with content um it's it's weird being thrust into the 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 content director position at carbide 3d without any like formal background in like marketing or graphic design or anything like it's taken me this long to start uh, picking like a different font for my video thumbnails between my channel and the carbide channel. So there's just so much like I am still getting comfortable with getting a workflow set up for. Um, but hopefully like 2020, like everything starts to feel like it fits, like California becomes home. Like I'm actually good at my job and, and so many other things. Um, but at the same time, I also do kind of want to push myself outside my comfort zone. So that means like more complex uh, five axis projects, uh, more complex work holding, um, spindle 2020. And uh, I don't know, um, with the uh, carbide gig, like I can say that there's a lot of like quality of life improvements coming, like um, the bit setter, the tool length probe that we just put out, like Lots of like little accessories like that will finally make the uh, ecosystem and offerings that we have just feel complete. Like sort of like just over the past couple of years, like looking at the CNC scene being like um, limit and homing switches used to be optional. Like we're getting to a place now where the um, what people can buy sort of feels mature, sort of like how 3D printing becomes like mainstream and like all the features are baked in. You've got all the basics. You've got like temperature monitoring, like heated beds and stuff. Um, I feel like the the hobby router scene is is at a really good like cusp of um, making things really accessible and easy. And uh, less of that kick car feel, right? Yeah, less of that like hacky like oh like like even having carbide motion like not having to use some third party software like. A company can support and provide the like the full stack of software and hardware to make something work. Um, we're in a good place now. So, so I, I have two questions for both each of you, and uh, and I'll answer mine. The same thing. Um, so, what was your favorite project of 2019? Let's start with you, Winston. Why do you have to do this to me? Um, I think I know, but <laughs> from a. a pure learning perspective i really love the knife project um being able to like a push a machine to its limits cutting steel but also learning about uh the the deep deep rabbit hole that is knife making like metallurgy like uh heat treating uh just how do you even sharpen a blade it's it's such a topic that can elicit um strong reactions from 
the the internet audience but it's just it's such a rich craft um that goes back really far and has so many little little nuances um, even just the aesthetics of a blade you can do a lot of things with it um so from a perspective of like it opened so many creative possibilities in my head that is definitely uh one of my favorite projects of all time um, i learned a, a ridiculous amount from it but from a, a sheer cool perspective um that would go to the the longboard um, just the idea of taking a, a 32 inch slab of half inch aluminum putting it on a cnc router and letting it run for like 10 hours is uh, a ridiculous thing to do um but i'm also glad to just plant the the flag in the ground of hey this is what a desktop cnc can do i mean you didn't just try it it actually worked so that was yeah the, it worked three yeah. times yeah that's so. pretty cool yeah so i would have thought you were going to go with the uh apple cheese grater but <laughs> while that was a probably the most successful project from a internet standpoint um like it was it was a passing novelty for me um but it's also like I've kind of grown weary of that video because I keep getting comments of like, oh, if Steve Jobs was alive, the cheese grater would have worked, or you're using the cheese grater wrongly. Like, oh going viral brings out the the worst trash of the internet. And so in that sense, I'm kind of over that project. But um, I do think it's cool still. And in a complete vacuum without any of the comments, I would want to make another design similar to that. Um, and maybe we can talk about that once you get the Daytron up and running. Yeah, I mean, just from a pure uh, like aesthetic, it, it's a pretty cool part. I like that pattern. I I liked I liked it just because you were able to do it at home on the Shape Poco, just like the Apple guys were. You know, what I mean, that to me that was the cool thing is anytime that we can punch above our weight class and send up to, and not only that, but garner the attention of, you know people out in the industry that I think that was very cool, but I honestly can't believe people gave you that shit about if Steve Jobs is here. You can make that cheese grater. That's unbelievable. But that's yeah, I, about I thought... 80% of my comments. <laughs> oh my God. But what, I mean, the neat thing about that project in addition to being viral was that, you know, you basically had to do a little reverse engineering. I mean, I think probably all of us, have, anyone that works with like CNC, you start to see things around you in your everyday life and you're like, how do they make that? Right. Or, or I know how they made that. Right. You say, Oh, I know how they did that. Right. Stuff that I think people that aren't into manufacturing just don't notice, but um, I'm assuming that's kind of like, it didn't take you too long to kind of look at it and figure out a, a strategy, right. That would reproduce that feature. So specifically about that, the more I like the later things went on, the more I realized that my solution wasn't the only solution. Um, shortly afterwards, like a couple weeks after uh, Linus tech tips, got a video where he made like his own little Hackintosh Mac Pro and there was a third-party company that was making like replica grills and the backside of that grill um, they used sort of just a instead of the the backside having circular cutouts they used sort of like a, a triangular pyramid type style cutout um, so you're actually removing a little more material but the the plane where it intersects the uh, hemisphere from the front is still roughly the same and um from a manufacturing standpoint i think that might actually be faster because you're not like 
uh, trying to make like perfect circles, you can sort of just rough out uh, a triangular depression. Um, and I don't think anyone's taken a good high quality picture of the back of the actual Mac Pro grill yet, um, but I think it might be something similar. Um, so I might not have gotten it perfectly correct, but from the front, visually, it looks correct. And for my applications where it has to hold up to inspection from both sides, I think my solution is probably the right way to go. Well, that's good. I mean, you actually answered my second question, which is, uh, like, what was the top thing you learned in 2019? How about you, Chris? Uh, my favorite project this year would have to be the uh, one inch by one inch mold I made for the Bantam contest. Um, that was a wake up call as thinking, I thought it was going to be a lot easier, but it was way harder than it was making the big mold. And it was more challenging to work with such a tiny little, uh, basically a, a mold with an injection system and stuff. So that was my most challenging and also my most fun project because it, it pushed me to learn a lot. Um, on the pocket and see, and also just putting together an assembly that slides and works and, and moves and actually makes a part, you know, and that was, that was kind of cool. I, I've never done a mold at home before. So that's, that's definitely my favorite project of the year. That's good. I think like mine, it wasn't that challenging of a like machining project, but the Delrin gears, like I learned basically a whole bunch of stuff I need to kind of do the business side of things here. I got better at quoting with that job. And basically the challenge was really just figuring out how to make that many of them efficiently with the machines I had here. So, or, you know, at maximum, maximum efficiency I could get out of these machines. So probably still not efficient enough to be like a viable business all by itself. <laughs> not going into just like gear production on the two Bantam machines in large quantities. But, um, but I was pretty proud of like basically you know, working with the limitations of what I had here, actually getting a working system and a happy customer out of that. So I um, picked up quite a few uh, business side learnings, I guess, I hate to use that word, but but uh, it was pretty good, you know, pretty good dry run for what I want to do in 2020 with the Neo and bigger parts and, you know, basically bigger, bigger jobs. How long did it take you to like actually get to a point where you weren't modifying the G code every run? Because I know like every time that I run something new for the first time, I see something like, oh, I should have tweaked that like contour toolpath or something. Like how many times did you go through that? Yeah. So I actually, I don't know if you remember, I had like a two gear. I basically had a prototype fixture that just did the op one, you know, the front side and the back side. It was just a two station fixture. So I used that to develop all the cam, like what I considered my production cam. And like I kind of had this rule in my head that I'm not going to go cut the bigger fixture the 12 station fixture or the two 12 station fixtures until i'm not touching the cam anymore like i want everything because worst thing i do is, is you know basically make the fixture and then decide i want to change one of the ops and i need a little more clearance or something you know in the fixture and i have to throw it away and start over again because uh, taking the fixture or making the fixtures was pretty substantial investment in time but yeah so basically i i went through the iterations on the cam the only thing i changed after like i kind of went into production was um, experimenting with the longer tool, like longer flute link tool instead of the stub to see if I could like trim down some of the time on the longest stop and that didn't work. So the, the tools were breaking. So I went back to what I was originally using. Um, but yeah, other than that, I kind of, I did spend, uh, I'd probably say like maybe two weeks, um, 
after I did the first order, kind of just speeding up the cam a little bit. I don't, I did the first order on just the two station fixture. That was slow. <laughs> you couldn't count that many gears, you know, one at a, kind of one at a time, but, um, I wanted to do that on purpose so, just so I could kind of develop the process and, and optimize the cam for the bigger orders I knew were coming next. And, uh, so yeah, about two weeks to kind of freeze the cam. And then I stuck with that all the way through all the other orders. I commend you for having such a disciplined approach. You know, I kind of took that opportunity because I kind of knew about the larger quantities coming. So, you know, kind of turned it into a learning exercise uh, intentionally. So, yeah, I think I, I learned a lot on that that I will be using in the future. So sounds like, Chris, you're seriously thinking about a new machine for 2020? Yes. Um, really, 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 really want one. Um yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to mine getting here. So, uh, but I kind of, you know, if I look back like seven months, eight months, I can kind of have a pretty good idea what you're going through in your head as far as like, does it make sense? What's the right machine? Right. I'm assuming you want to kind of do it with the goal of making some money with it, right? Or is it pure hobby? You know, I'm okay. So, one of the things I learned from 2019 that kind of ties into this is that it's very nice to make money on a machine, but it comes at a cost because making something for somebody else means I'm not making something for me. And one of the things that I'm debating right now is, am I getting this machine just so I can make other people's stuff? Because to me, that's, that's not. Well, I mean, making, making your own products is also a viable approach, right? If you have right. Something it's, in mind. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, it's more exciting to me knowing like I'm going to buy this machine to make my own thing so that I could sell that, you know, and that's kind of what I'm more geared towards right now. I, I want to make it less a job shop thing and make it more a for me things. And if that's the case, that means I'll have to maybe buck up the cash to pay the machine on my own and make it like a hobby thing just so I can work on developing the product and moving it forward. I don't want to get tied down by, okay, well, I, let's do some job shop work, make a little money to pay the, the rent for the machine, and then then work on my stuff. Because I don't want to be derailed focus-wise on what I'm trying to accomplish. And doing jobs for other people can definitely do that. So um, I, I want to focus on one thing. So I'm going to decide, like, is this going to be a money-making thing? And, or is this going to be just a pure hobby thing for my own personal product that I want to make? I mean, it's good to think about that up front because that's probably going to influence, you know, the capabilities of the machine you'll need, right? So, yeah, if you, you basically, you know, good example, like if you got the Neo, but you were planning on making knives or working in steel, you might want to rethink that, right? So, like for me, the Neo is perfect because I'm doing mostly aluminum and engineering plastics and stuff like that. It's just, you know, got a lot of, a lot of stuff to think about before you just go jump in, like... I, I catch myself sometimes I look at the, like the secondary market CNC machine auctions, you know, I get emails yeah. signed up for view those. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I sit there and look at, Oh, Oh, look, there's a Makino for sale, <laughs> like cheap. <laughs> you know, it's like, but no, that's not really the right machine. Wouldn't fit here. And, and it's yeah, way more than I need, but um, yeah. So it's good to have a plan definitely before you pull the trigger on something. And then let's say I, I went down that path. I, I knew I was going to get this machine to develop one of my products that I have in my head that I want to sell. The next problem I have is one of my products is like a three axis thing. And the other one is a live tool lathe thing. 
So I have to kind of decide like, am I going for this one product? And if I am, I need a, I need a turning center with a live tool versus if I don't go with that, I'm gonna do something else and I can, I can use the three axis. So I'm gonna get divided once more after I decide if it's a personal thing. And then I need to decide, well, which product am I gonna develop first and which machine am I gonna pick first? Cause I can't make that product on a mill cause I need, it's a turning, you know, it's a lathe project. Hey Winston, I, I think we would both support you in, in being the guy that, the, one of the three of us that gets the, the multi-axis uh, mill turns. <laughs> one of oh, us is going to have to get one. <laughs> I feel like I'm the least qualified to operate one of those machines. Leave the three-axis stuff to me. You can uh, go teach yourself some, some fancy <laughs> mill turn or uh, live tooling lathe. The, the thing is, is there even like a Tormach or Sill equivalent of a live tool lathe? You know, like, yeah, not that I know of, you know, that's the problem. It's like, I want to make this thing and I need that kind of machine, but I don't think there's like a 25, $40,000 machine that can do that. I don't know. I haven't really looked. So, so Haas has the, you know, they have the CM one, the compact mill, which is the one I was kind of looking at when I looked at the Neo. So they have a lathe in that same kind of product line. I think they call it the, I want to say it's the L or the CL, sorry. So there's CM1 is the milling machine, CL1 is the lathe. Um, I don't know if it's like a practical machine or not. I don't know much about it, but uh, actually, I don't know if it has live tooling. I shouldn't say that. No, it does have live. I think it has two live tools. I think it does have like a Y-axis. It's kind of a weird machine. Look at it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll check it out. 6,000 RPM live tooling. Uh, ER11 spindles, 200 watt. What? So I would look at that machine before I'd probably look at a Tormach slant lathe. Like, I think price-wise, it's not too far off. Um, but I think, you'd, like, if you were going to get a, a, like, say, in the Haas line, the SL, like an SL, smaller, SL10, I think that's the smallest one they have, or 10Y might be what you'd want. Depends on whether you want a sub-spindle or not. This is the CL1? Yeah, the CL one's kind of their compact lathe. Okay. I think it's the cheapest lathe that Haas sells. I don't know. Maybe that some of the tool room ones are cheaper, but um. starts at forty uh, k. The live tooling option is like eight or nine k, but that it's two hundred watts of power, which seems a little low. Yeah, it is pretty low. And I think that I don't know what the Tormach slant lathe is. Um, price wise, it's probably close to thirty twenty five to thirty like fully optioned out with the turret and gang options on it. But it's, there's no live tooling as far as I know on the Tormach. Right. So that's the thing, like, you know, if I, I do really want to make the product that needs to be turned, but it's taking more cost up front to, to make that and space too. I'm not, I'm not sure how big these things are. Yeah. Lades are, I think, you know, just out of the box, they tend to be easier to automate because you can do like a bar puller um, at least get some you know, series of parts out unattended, even with the basic lathe. Um, you know, if you don't have subspindle, you just have to deal with how you're going to finish the backside. You know, it's it parting off leads to little nipple or whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I could get around it and I could do the turning, and then basically set up a fixture on the three axis to hold the turn part because there'll be a bore through it. And then I can do the milling 
or the pseudo live tooling on the three axis. I mean, I can get around it if I really, really have to, but um, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the gist of where I'm at, you know, like I have options. I just need to figure out what I want to do if I'm going to go the, this path. Um, the, this Haas Lace, the 50K is definitely on the end of like what I would want to spend if it's just for like a hobby thing or developing a product. I was thinking, you know, the kind of lathes like uh, Urban Survival Gear Kelvin uses, like to do his pins. I can't remember what model, but they're small and they're like, they're, you know, they're industrial machines, but they're, um, I think those are all like gang tooling without life. I don't think they have live tools. I'm not really sure. Yeah. As soon as you add live tooling, it just, it puts you in a different market. Maybe Carbide can come out with a live tool desktop <laughs> lathe. <laughs> that, that's probably a couple years off at least. Um, I'm assuming Winston, you're, you're basically just going to kind of continue to grow the two things that you were growing this year, which is kind of getting your feet firmly planted at Carbide in, in your role at Carbide. And, uh, continuing to work on the YouTube side of things for your personal channel and Carbide. Pretty much. And, and try and convince Carbide to make bigger and bigger machines. So, uh, but that's, that's just a self-serving selfish desire. How about lathe with the uh, live tooling and sub subsmental? Oh, <laughs> you know what? Rob does listen to the podcast. So, um, if, if he's listening, he should, uh, you should totally consider it. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'd love to have like a small <laughs> desktop lathe that actually had all those features. So, you know, that'd be awesome. No one's really doing anything like that. Um, that would be a take my money moment. Yeah, I can't remember the guy. I, I don't want to mention because I probably get his ID handle wrong. But there was a there's like someone that was really, really close with the DIY uh, lathe that they built. Um, pretty close to like my ideal inside lathe right that would go on my desktop it did not have live tooling but it was a really nice little compact gang lathe um yeah so that gang tooling lathe but uh yeah hopefully someone it must, i don't know if it's just harder to make a lathe or just no one's really attracted to small lathes other than like watchmakers like maybe there's some minimum useful size and it's much bigger than what would fit on a desk for most parts I think most companies just don't think there's a market for this kind of stuff, but hopefully that changes soon. It's also kind of like the scalability of these products, right? Because if you're going to put in the effort to design something that works on a desktop, you probably have the fundamentals to scale it up just a little bit bigger and have it be a standalone machine. And like the amount of money that it's going to cost is like if you could make one for like a full size one for 30,000. The little one is still probably going to be like 20000 and uh, it's a really tough uh, business case to make to, to your higher-ups that, hey, we can offer this smaller product that does less than 50% of what the big one can do at like 75% of the, the big one's price. Speaking of small DIY lathes, I did get to see the, uh, the DIY lathe at, at Saunders when I was... Uh, in Ohio. I forgot to take pictures of it. I don't know why I, went. I was like too busy Googling it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The one that makes it was, yeah. they were going to use it. It was like, like a, a three tool, like you could rotate the turret. Yeah. It made the, uh, the plugs for the, uh, fixture plates, bolt holes. Yeah. I think they ended up injection molding those parts, but it was pretty neat. It's nice to see it. It was, it was uh, actually kind of smaller than I was thinking from seeing it on TV. 
or on uh, YouTube. I mean, TV's valid if you cast it, but come on, Eddie, you should have taken pictures of everything. <laughs> so for me, I'm just uh, 2020 is going to be mostly you know focused on getting proficient with the, the new machine, and um, you know I still I want a mix of kind of job like third party jobs and uh, continue to develop my my product line, kind of basically get serious about it next year, my work holding product line and whatever else I come up with. That's kind of my main focus in 2020. Chris, couldn't you like do something like that? Because I know you've got like aspirational projects that are like really complex, but have you considered like making a product that's that's simpler to run that you can uh, design and just hit cycle start and it's sort of just like a brainless easier thing to do that still gets you income but it's still your own thing and just in while those parts are running use that time to work on your your bigger more ambitious projects yeah and it's it would definitely be for something that it's not a if we're talking passion levels it probably won't be top tier to the the item i'm talking about but like i don't know that that's the struggle i have it's like i feel like i'm my desire to do something is very tied to the, the passion for the project. And when something hits my mind, I usually just need to run with it immediately. And that's how I get through it and get it done. If I dwell on it a little bit too much, I think I've started to notice that it, you know, life gets in the way. Um, so if I'm working on a, a smaller project that I know isn't as, I'm not as into it, it just, I don't know. I'm just weird like that. I don't know what that's called, but I need to be like on fire on something and then I need to just bang it out and then it gets done. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way with the tombstones. Like I'm behind where I wanted to be on the final design for the PNC tombstone. But, uh, so basically I just set some time up in January where that's all I'm going to work on. So, um, I'm actually going to, I'm getting, uh, the first prototypes, actually, I'm sending those out to one of my clients. That um, so we're kind of switching places. He's going to do some work for me, and uh, I'm going to send those off. Uh, also get them anodized and kind of see where that goes. That's going to be like, I guess, the first prototype. I'll probably make some changes and then uh, try to figure out like where I go next. I don't really know the volume yet, so I might be able to make them on the Neo, like small production runs. I'm pretty sure I can make the prototypes for like version two on there. That's my early January plan. And then February, the machine gets here. And then, you know, March, hopefully I'm making real parts. Chris, I have the perfect solution to your issues. You should train your wife to hit cycle start. Oh, she, she's, uh, she's definitely in training right now as we speak. Uh, I, I might I might pawn off all those like easier soulless projects to her and she can load stock and press start and stuff. So um, that's definitely one of the things I'm going to have her do. And while that, while she's doing that and, you know, whatever, selling on Etsy or anywhere else, I can work on the other stuff as well. So she she's down for that. Is her name Fanuk? <laughs> <laughs> it might work. Do you mean Fanuk? <laughs> oh, man. Did you? Did, I, I'm curious as to. I remember the podcast from uh, Business Machining. Uh, Saunders heard the tech guy say it's Fanuc, but it's a Japanese company, and if you pronounce it in Japanese, it's, it's not. It's Fanuc. So I don't know. This is one of those stupid things that's never going to get solved because everyone says it different. Even with even within their own company, I bet you they say it differently. That's funny. I'm still working on just trying to pronounce Kern correctly. Was well, it not Kern? Well, it's not. It sounds different when uh, they say it in Germany. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> yeah, I think their vowels a little bit different. Uh, 
sound than, than American dialect or English dialect. Speaking of current, I found a flash drive at my work on top of one of our, I guess, laser cabinets or something. And I looked inside and there were like uh, movies of like palette changers and um, the Vario and the older machines, the Pyramid Nano and stuff on there. So I, I guess a current uh, person might stop by and tried to sell a machine to us when they were looking for a five axis um, back when they were looking for five axis. I could, but they ended up with the Yaza. So I thought that was interesting. As all these old movies. Maybe we'll end up with the Kern there someday. I'm, I've been slowly planting seeds in my boss for the last three months. Just dropping little nuggets of information as I walk by. Does he know about the, uh, the HD, the new machine? Uh, he knows about it, but uh, I'm, I'm more of just dropping features to him right now. You know, like when, when there's a problem at work that we can't solve, I'll be like, well, you know, the Kern could do that. And, and then I kind of walk away. And then one of these days I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to harvest that plant and try to get him to do you guys do a lot of uh, post machining finishing processing on the molds like hand polishing or anything like that we do hand polishing if it's really delicate otherwise we'll try to do um, you know a lot of times they want EDM textured finish so we'll need to burn it Um, but if if they don't want it then yeah we can just machine it and we'll usually do it on um, it depends on on the on the part and the features but Three axis if we can. If not, then we'll put on the five axis to do the rest. Yeah, sorry. I was assuming you guys had smooth finish, but it's probably more textured for the silicone. Yeah, stuff. it's like, man, most of that stuff is all like there's a Charmy's chart and we have to go. They want this texture like 24, 16, 18. Or, and it's like very specific as to what they want. So we always have to try to match that. Yeah, you guys burn that in with an electrode? Yeah, we can burn that in with electrode. Um Depending on the power setting and the overburn that we use, we can uh, achieve the texture on the chart. There's like a universal chart. And basically, we know what power settings will give us what um, type of texture. And then uh, we match that. And then we have a little physical. It's like a a ruler stick, but there's one inch squares. And each square has a different texture. And it tells you the number. And you can kind of uh, visually check real quick to see how close you are. But it's really hard to tell between like a 16 and a 17 and an 18. It's like very close. You can you can only start to tell visually when it's like 20 to 10, you know, or 20 to 15 or something like that. So I got one more question for you guys. And I'll start with the answer, which is I never got around to it, <laughs> which is uh, did you guys get a chance to play around with the, the free generative design in Fusion? Like I think there's what there today's Sunday, so there's like two more days. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Yeah, same. What here. about you, Winston? I tried to plug in a Shapeoko rail extrusion, and I think my my initial conditions or something were off, or maybe my keepout regions weren't uh, robust enough. Um, I got results. They don't look great though, um, and I'm not sure if it's a just a thing with generative generative design itself or just how i set it up um i did come out with with quote-unquote lightweight rails um that would meet certain conditions but um they just there's a lot of little things that i probably could have improved if i had a little more time to play around with the setup um the way i designed my um study was i uh, extruded a sleeve around the the shape of the rail 
um, because we get these extrusions in a certain form, so you can't uh, machine something larger than what you're starting with. Um, and I uh, did a keep out region through the middle of it. Um, I set the, the little V contacts on the rails as a region to keep, and that's also where I would be loading the a pressure on. And so those were my constraints. And I probably should have done a little extra material around the rails because sometimes it just it left like a ridiculously thin amount of material there. And I don't know how to simulate a point load. So I was just doing pressure. And so if a V-wheel rolled across some of those thinner sections, it definitely wouldn't wouldn't be too great. Um, so I didn't get a usable result out of it, but I do feel comfortable setting up more simple studies. So like if I found myself with a couple hundred credits just floating around in a, a good part that could benefit from generative, I would feel a lot more comfortable uh, giving it a shot. Um, but I don't have anything actionable or machinable out of this month's uh, little playtime session. Yeah, I decided to, you know, as a consolation, since I didn't really get to play around with it, I'm going to, uh, uh, one thing I did get to, or I did notice is they, Autodesk put a lot of the training resources, like links to them out on their, it was, I think it's mostly on Instagram, but um, stuff I didn't know was out there. I've seen a few of the, the GD tutorials, but there's, there's quite a lot, quite a few more out there that I didn't know about. So I just kind of been, uh, collecting those and hopefully I'll watch those so that if they ever do it again, I'll be a little bit more knowledgeable and go right into making something. But yeah, like you said, there's, there's a lot to learn about GD cause it, there's like, like it's not just geometry, right? Like I said, you got the simulation. Um, you have to understand that a little bit to make a, a part that behaves the way you want it to behave. So it's quite a, quite a lot to kind of pick up on in one month, I think, or a month and a half. That they and also it. like some of the, the um, basic like setup constraints requirements, like those could change. Like right now you have drop downs for like, do you want to make this uh, design for additive for three axes for 2.5 uh, machining? And so who knows like how this is going to evolve. Like by the next, uh, uh, Fusion Academy, like they might drop another huge feature that makes it like vastly easier to use or um, gives you different results. Uh, right now, I'm still having trouble getting a result that would be easy to machine, um, like just based on how I've been doing it from like the the front face and the back face. Uh, it's still like thinning things out in in weird ways. I I haven't gotten like. Um, their example of like a, a 2.5D machine like bracket with like three holes, uh, they have it in a way that you could almost knock down a bridge port. I haven't gotten a result that looks that easy to machine for my little fake lightweight rail. They're investing pretty heavily in that, so I would expect it to get better over time. And maybe like when there's been some major changes, they'll, they'll give us another chance to play around with it and see if it's for us. Um, I, I don't think it's the design intent of theirs to have it produce aesthetically pleasing parts. It's just sometimes like it does, right? <laughs> you just get lucky and it does, but um, yeah, you have to look through a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, ugly looking parts to find one that kind of looks pretty cool. It would be probably in my best interests if I just cut my study in half and used symmetry or maybe cut it even like cut my rail into a quarter. Um, 
to simplify the calculation time because I do kind of feel bad about the carbon footprint of me just hitting run on like five studies at like max mesh refinement um, and just letting it run overnight because uh, it's probably a lot of uh, server time. You got a good solid hour here. Um, any, any last things you want to cover before we wrap up for tonight? Uh, not really in particular, but I do want to thank all the listeners for uh, sticking with us through this uh, little experiment of ours and uh, wish you all a happy new year. Yep, same here. I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to next year. Same. Happy New Year, guys. I'll catch you guys soon. Happy New Year. Good night. Good night.